0: On today's episode, Ashley shares the story of Susan and Felix Polk, a tragic story of control, manipulation, and mental illness disguised as domestic bliss. Welcome to Crime Bar.
1: Good morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm recording from the comfort of my bed, and it was a really nice week because I had it off. You had this week covered. I get to take up the whole episode. Yes, my lazy ass enjoyed every bit of
0: it. I didn't. I didn't realize that was going to happen. And then I, as I was timing
1: how long it took me to do my story, it's like almost an hour of just me talking. Well, it sounds like you like took such an interest in it so you know I'm excited to dive in and hear about it. Yeah so today I am doing the story of Susan Polk. okay
0: have you ever heard of her
1: I don't think I've heard anything about this it's the name sounds familiar but I think I don't think I, I know anything.
0: okay so I was so genuinely surprised when I found the story because it happened uh right near where I grew up and it had been really heavily covered in the news yet I didn't hear about it until I was doing research for this
1: interesting so somehow, was it like during your time of living there yeah I was 12 oh my god <laughs> i know
0: so, but it was just like it was huge it you know, it happened like 15 minutes away and it was huge news okay and i don't know like i just Twelve year just old Ashley. It. Yeah, twelve yeah. year old Ashley really missed the boat. So Susan Bowling was born in my hometown of Concord, California on January twenty fifth, nineteen fifty seven. So she's an Aquarius.
1: Yes. I was trying to think about that as soon as you said it, which is so <laughs> sad. I'm like, so not a Capricorn. What's the next <laughs> <Yeah>. one?
0: <laughs> and uh Concord's like thirty minutes east of San Francisco. So it's just mm-hmm. a suburb of the city. Her parents divorced when she was really young, and her dad basically started a new family and just left the old one behind, like one of those stories. Yeah. Susan was described as kind of a wallflower bookworm growing up. She, like, sort of a loner. Like, she really struggled to fit in with kids her age and felt like anytime that she engaged with her peers, it was like she was speaking another language.
1: Oh, I relate so hard to this. Yeah. And God.
0: She, and she felt like like nobody could understand her.
1: Yeah. Just socially awkward a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Wiser than her years.
0: Yeah. So when Susan was 14, she started getting a lot of unwanted attention from boys, which is Great. so relatable. Mm. And it made her super uncomfortable. So between already feeling like such an outsider and then now this harassment from boys... She started feeling such an overwhelming amount of anxiety that she stopped going to school altogether.
1: Oh, my God. Poor girl. Yeah. And she's Uh, only 14 years old? She's 14, yeah. That's so sad. And so her teachers were
0: really worried, and they recommended that Susan's mom take her to be evaluated by a psychotherapist that specialized in adolescence. And so she took her to a man named
1: Dr. Felix Polk. Oh, my gosh. I know the story. Do you? Yes. Yeah, you can, you can continue to tell everybody. Okay. This isn't just for me. Do you, should I stop here? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's a good one, guys. Trust me.
0: So, Felix Polk was born to a pretty well-off Jewish couple in Austria on June 30th, 1932. So he's a cancer. hmm By the time Felix is nine years old, he has already experienced an insane amount of trauma. Nazi Germany had invaded Austria when he was six years old, which led his family uh, successfully fleeing to France, where they went into hiding for a few years before they managed to get visas and immigrate to New York in 1941. So like most trauma victims from that era and that uh, that whole time, his parents mm-hmm. refused to discuss all they had lost and all they had been through and it was just you know, as if it didn't
1: happen. like kind of, we yeah, don't speak yeah, of our traumas, move on.
0: Keep it moving. So, similar to Susan, he was also described as a very quiet bookworm growing up. So, after graduating college in 1953, Felix pursued a Navy career, but he struggled with anxiety and quite a few bouts of depression. So, sometime in 1955, he attempted suicide by locking himself in a garage with the car running. Ugh. And luckily... Felix was saved by a friend who'd spoken with him earlier in the evening and became worried after recognizing how depressed he'd been.
1: Yeah, I just knew something was wrong.
0: Yeah, so when she went over to check on him, she found him passed out in the car. So after this suicide attempt, he was discharged from the Navy and spent a year in a mental institute. And once he was released, he had made the decision to go back to school in order to switch careers because he had been helped immensely by mental health professionals. And so he wanted to go into that line of work. And do something that mattered with his life. And help other people improve their lives. So while he's in school. He meets and falls in love with a girl named Sharon. And they get married. And they have kids. And they move to Berkeley. Where Felix earned a PhD in psychology. So this is where I get super peeved. Because I love therapy. I think everyone needs it. And I, it um, it's such a vulnerable thing place and the relationship that you develop with your therapist is so sacred. Absolutely. Like it's, it's built on like the ultimate trust. Yes. Um. So we all know that the role of a therapist is typically displayed as an impartial, non-reactive professional that guides you through struggles. Their goal is to create a safe space for you to work through things without judgment. So. They don't tend to share personal opinions, religious or political views or anything like that.
1: So Felix- basically what you're saying is when someone shares like a sad story, they're not allowed to be like, same, that also happened to me as if <laughs> yeah. like we all do. Yeah.
0: They're not allowed to do that.
1: <laughs> they can't make it about them. No.
0: But Felix approached his practice in almost the exact opposite way. So he sort of did it like that. like he The incorrect way? The incorrect way. He would overshare with his patients very personal details of his life. He let patients babysit his kids and then openly expressed his feelings and opinions during sessions, like on everything.
1: So I obviously am not a therapist or a psychologist, but to me that screams narcissist, like having to make everything about him.
0: Well, I don't think that he made everything about him, but he he it was he was developing more of a friendship than, got it okay yeah he even invited them over to his home for dinners like with his family so it was like very friendship
1: like and no boundary which is yeah, so important no, oh, i yeah. feel like in a session that
0: <laughs> it's like the most <laughs> important feel. part uh-huh yeah um so he becomes a really firm advocate for a form of ther- therapy called est where a huge group of participants attend a 60-hour seminar. They sit on a stage and they undergo this <laughs> emotional and verbal assaults in front of the other 200 participants. As it's a like way- being in high school. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. It's like walking to the lunchroom. So they do that as a way to improve themselves, their relationships, personal goals. So it's... Reaching their
1: goals by being insulted in every single variation.
0: Yeah. It's very, um, there's like controversy around this form of therapy and I don't even know how popular it is anymore, but uh, it was a big thing back in the seventies when that's the era we're in right now in the seventies. He was obsessed with it. He went through it. It, He said it changed his life. And Mm -hmm. so
1: it could be cathartic. I could see that.
0: I, I'm not. I just think that sounds like horrific public abuse.
1: Public humiliation.
0: Yeah. Proceed. Sorry. So when he started treating 15-year-old Susan, he bonded with her and gained her trust by pointing out to her how, simili- how similar they were, like their wallflower personalities and love of mm-hmm. books. And when he was her age, they were exactly the same. So it's just, he. there was just enough similarities that... You know, she felt comfortable with him. So when you remember that she felt very isolated from her peers, she didn't have anything in common with anyone her age. It's like finally bonding with
1: someone. Yes. You finally feel like you belong. Yeah. And that relationship becomes much more valuable because you know that doesn't happen often for you.
0: Right. So finally bonding with someone, even if it was her 40-year-old male therapist.
1: Well, you can almost see as like a kid feeling like that makes you like even cooler or more intelligent because remember being that age and like adults were this like it was so they were like glorified. So basically if like a, an adult in that profession were to see themselves in you, I would almost I can understand her being flattered by that.
0: Yeah. And I, I think that's what it was. And it was so transformative for her. Mm hmm. So their therapist-patient relationship became deeply emotional very quickly. And given that Felix seemed to believe the more personal, the better. And she felt like she was connecting to someone else for the first time in her life. It's not surprising, but it's mm-hmm. just still gives me the creeps. It just irritates yeah, me so much. It's deeply unsettling. Yeah. it's just... Like imagine if that were your child. Ugh. So Susan says that their relationship turned physical slowly in ways like choosing to sit on the same couch rather than separate seats. And then sitting closer so their legs touched, then holding hands, then long lingering hugs goodbye, and so on. Until one day they started having sex in their sessions when she was 16 years
1: old. So they went from sitting on the same couch to sex. If that were my child and entrusting, you know, her mental state with this person, and uh, I know, I'm speechless. I mean, I it's so unsettling.
0: So this was in the 1970s, and sleeping with patients was frowned upon, but not was at- it frowned upon, <laughs> discouraged. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it, it, it was frowned upon, but it not it wasn't actually illegal in California until 1992. So it was very surprising to learn that but I guess apart from the age gap it wasn't as scandalous as it sounds today but it I don't know it just doesn't make common. it any less wrong oh right I mean like you know yeah I mean I, I think like when I say that I'm referring to two adults having sex like that's absolutely it, it, like absolutely. that was that was taboo but I mean I guess I didn't verify if it was illegal to have sex with a 16 year old I yeah that, I, that part I assume it was but you know uh, so Felix- proceed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling it's just going to get worse. So it's, keep going. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> Felix continued treating her
1: and sleeping with her
0: for about five years before his wife discovered that he was having an affair and demanded a divorce. That poor woman. So about a year later when Susan was only 22. So she's been in this sexual relationship with this guy in his forties since she was 16. They broke up for a few months But Felix went into a severe depression and alluded to Susan that he might consider suicide. So she said that she felt a responsibility to be with him. So she said that between his difficult childhood, his, you know, getting a divorce for her, and then now this supposed depression that resulted from their breakup. She had this attitude like, I made my bed. Now I have to lay in it, which is so, so sad. So sad. So, on December 26, 1981, they get married. And even though Susan's mom had been so adamantly against their relationship, given how it started and their significant age gap, I guess she came around and accepted the union because she was there at the wedding. Susan was 24 and Felix was 50. So, basically, he could have been her father. Oh, yeah. Easily. Easily.
1: Ugh. Great. Great. I'm trying to be optimistic and... No. no. No, no, no. There's no yeah, optimism no, no, no. in this I know, I know. story. So brutal.
0: So they moved into a beautiful home in Berkeley, and I guess just sort of settled into married life, and by all accounts from those around them at the time, they seemed very in love and happy creating this little home together, but I... I don't know. I'm, there was more going on on the inside is what you're clearly, saying? Yeah. I'm shocked. <laughs> it's like... I don't know. So not long after they get married, they have their first son, Adam. And Susan embraced motherhood, but almost to like an obsessive extent.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: they had part-time childcare that Susan and Felix trusted. But the satanic panic of the 80s really fueled some irrational fears for Susan cuz I guess they sh- they had like a nanny share situation, so they had a nanny that they shared with other families, but like Adam was sent to the nanny's house, so it wasn't like childcare in their home. Okay, it was like daycare, kind of, yeah. So when Adam was around a year old, his parents claimed that he started exhibiting strange behavior, like not sleeping through the night and throwing tantrums, which in my opinion is just the life of a toddler. But Susan was convinced that this was a sign that Satan worshipers had access to Adam while he was at daycare. There's
1: steps that we can take before blaming it on devil. (laughs) Yeah, you'd think. You
0: would think, yeah. Um... And I know that, like, you are not around babies very much. So, just to be clear, like, a one year old is only just starting to say words. And it's mostly gibberish with, like, a legit word or name thrown in here and there. But despite this, Susan was certain that their son had been harmed and that he was lashing out and trying to communicate to her what he had experienced.
1: She, like, thinks that he's speaking Latin, like, in an exorcism. Maybe. I
0: don't know. So she would try to coax him into telling her about the, quote, bad people. And if she managed to decipher a name from him, she would spend hours poring over the phone book, trying to find the person he was referencing. Then she would ask him about certain names. Like she would prompt him when she found the name in the phone book, thinking he would be able to like
1: identify someone. So it's like one year old is not a reliable source. No, like, Susan.
0: <laughs> Susan, one year olds are like aren't even capable of fully walking on their own. Like they can walk, but it's still real wobbly. So this is just, they like
1: point at a cat and they yeah, can be like
0: dog. You know, exactly. it's like no,
1: it's crazy. You idiot. I'm it's kidding. crazy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like she really thinks her baby's going to know the first and last name of someone he came into contact with at daycare. You know, like that's yeah. her logic. So. If Adam gave her a, quote, signal that she had found someone in the phone book who had abused him, she would case the person's house for days in the hopes of catching suspicious behavior. Um,
1: yeah. She sounds like she's losing it. Not to be judgmental, that, but... That's putting it lightly. It's the first sign of someone losing it. I think so. So
0: between her bizarre interrogations of her toddler and then buying into this satanic panic, Susan started telling people that after being dropped off at daycare, Adam and the other kids would be packed up into a van and shuttled to a warehouse that was set up with studio-grade lighting and cameras, and they'd be put into
1: cages. So you're so did Adam, the one year old, tell her this or did she just come up with this on her own?
0: This is what she's telling everyone in their life that Adam has communicated to her. The one year old. So then she says after the kids are put into cages, satanic worshippers in robes and masks would sexually assault all of the kids and sell the recorded footage to pedophiles. And she insisted that Adam told her that he watched these robe Satan worshippers. Force a small child into a trash bag, and beat it to death with a hammer, and then they ate the dead child. So this is all really heavy and dark. And normally I steer clear of crimes against children, but the claims surrounding all of the '80s satanic panic have never once been substantiated. So this shit is made up. And it's like it, a
1: horrific folklore.
0: Yeah, and it's it was just a, it was just a public panic, and it's a really important part of the story that I think is very indicative of Susan's mental state. So even though that's hard to digest, um, just remember it's not true. (laughs) So like, it's you know, a one-year-old really can't communicate much. I love kids and
1: I've made a career out of
0: caring for them. So I say this with love. Toddlers don't
1: know shit. But also it's like parents get like hyped up when their kid says dada. You know what I mean? Like that's a big deal. So
0: if you have this like, Like, if you want information from kids of any age, you can't feed them leads. But again, a one-year-old cannot possibly communicate any of this stuff anyways. Even if he did witness or experience something terrible, he wouldn't have had the capacity to comprehend it, much less communicate it to someone, like, what happened.
1: Absolutely. And you can't do that as, like, to an adult. You can't feed them information, like, when you're questioning them.
0: Yeah, but especially kids.
1: Especially a one-year-old.
0: Yeah. And I don't know um, initially what Felix's thoughts were on this. Like, whether or not he was aware of his wife stalking random people from the phone book for days on end. But That was
1: actually my next question. Is, what was Felix doing throughout all of this?
0: Yeah. At some point, he jumps on board. So, initially, like, I don't really know. I couldn't find anything on, like, how he felt initially. But, um... At some point, he gets on board with it, he reinforces all of Susan's claims, he completely believes her and supports her, and he even founded an organization called Enough that pressures lawmakers to intervene and stop satanic abuse of children. And like, he traveled the country and spoke at rallies and gave interviews, like, he he
1: became heavily invested in this um, organization. Toxic. Like, this is all toxic from, like, the minute you said that he not only believed it, but then reinforced it and then built on it. Yeah. This is, like, when you need a sane partner to step in and be like, honey, I think we need to take you to the hospital.
0: Yeah. But you remember he's the professional in that setting. So he thinks that he's...
1: That God complex.
0: Yeah. And he... She was his patient. So, he, like, her uh, her mental state is the product of his... Forming. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So
0: he's got a weird pride surrounding it because he thinks Absolutely. that she's healthy. So over the next few years, they have two more sons, Eli and Gabriel. And despite their adamant beliefs that their eldest son, Adam, was abused by a satanic cult, and the fact that Felix and Susan spent the majority of the 80s like speaking at those rallies and raising money and, and you know fully investing themselves into this organization, mm-hmm. uh, they eventually come to the conclusion that their two youngest sons also end up getting abused by satanic cults.
1: Like how I... often are how often are these kids going places? like that's... if you're so concerned by this, don't let them out of your supervision.
0: Exactly. like I, I don't follow the logic or the logistics like of how that's possible because of like how paranoid they must have been about that. And when is this all
1: going down? In the 80s. No, but like, I mean, yeah, but like when, like, like technically when? yeah.
0: Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, I don't, I don't know the logistics of this. It's so ridiculous. But I think it just shows like how irrational and fearful they were. Like there's just, there wasn't logic in that.
1: Yeah. Like Satan will find a way.
0: I guess. So Susan started to feel that she was being followed by shadowy figures around their Berkeley neighborhood. So the family moved to Piedmont, which is a very wealthy neighborhood in Oakland, um, and I think that she, because of all the, all the work they were doing, she thought it was like Satan worshipers following her to like try to scare her into stopping. So this move to Piedmont seemed to do a lot to relieve Susan of her stress and paranoia. And she spent the nineties as a stay at home mom. And Susan had a reputation amongst the other moms for being a little bit like oblivious or naive and kind of a pushover with her kids. Like her kids kind of ran the show and she mm-hmm. didn't really have rules or anything like that. Like she just let them run wild and didn't implement any um, boundaries or punishments in their home. But otherwise to their friends and other outsiders, they seemed overall like a relatively normal family. During this point in their lives, Felix gets really involved with a form of therapy built around the idea of suppressed memories in adults. The idea is that an individual experiences a trauma at an age so young that they can't comprehend what's happened, so they suppress it, but with the appropriate therapy later on in life, they can access those memories and work through the trauma. And there's been some controversy like around the validity of this and a lot of accusations of therapists like feeding ideas to patients, similar to Susan feeding leads to little baby Adam about this supposed satanic ritual abuse. Anyways, Felix is, like, really staying on brand with his no-boundaries approach to therapy and encourages Susan to undergo this therapy in order to discover suppressed memories she may have, and because she trusts and does everything he says, she does it. So she's doing this therapy. She wasn't doing it with him. She had her own, like, therapist. So she's doing that suppressed memory work for a few weeks, and the family... Um, takes a trip in 1998 to Disneyland. Um, And Susan has, on this trip at some point, like when they're back in their hotel room, Susan has something that Felix describes as a psychotic break. She starts sobbing uncontrollably. Like she just becomes hysterical out of nowhere. And she claimed that she was recalling suppressed memories of a man chasing her, and her hiding in a closet and she thought it was her father and that he had sexually assaulted her when she was a child and she also claimed that she recalled a memory of watching her parents beat a police officer to death with hammers
1: oh my god
0: and then another supposed memory was of her brother attacking and beating her severely Um, Disneyland
1: triggered all of this for her (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I mean it can be stressful crowds can be stressful but this is this is a lot then she starts to doubt that her parents
0: were really her parents um so much so that they had a DNA test done <laughs> and it proved that her parents were in fact her parents but for whatever reason all of these other memories that she had were believed to be factual that's just mind-boggling to me like when you consider that she accused her parents of murdering someone you know like the the, if she remembers her brother and dad hurting her like that's i'm not saying that they did and and they both denied it so i'm not saying that's true but yeah that's more believable than the this supposed memory that her parent like she watched her parents beat a cop
1: with a hammer to death
0: um and then when they you know through a DNA test proved one of her other supposed memories like she she claimed to recall being adopted by this couple so this supposed memory is literally proven with science to be wrong but they just believe everything else that she's recalling supposedly
1: as if it's fact
0: yeah so around the same time as the Disneyland trip their oldest son Adam he was in his late teens and he started to recognize his mom's paranoia when she would do things like look for coded messages in the newspapers and magazines. Uh oh. Yeah and when he tried talking to his dad about it Felix shut it down and insisted Susan was stable and honest and deserved her family support and reminded Adam that you know Susan believed him completely and fought for him when he was quote unquote abused. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is also another crazy thing to think about because this poor kid has grown up believing that he was Horribly abused and witnessed horrible things as an infant, but like we don't remember shit from when we're a year old. So like, so even if that was true, he's grown up being told that he experienced all of these horrible things. When in reality, even if he had, he's not going to remember them because he was just too little.
1: And basically, he's recovering some from something that never even happened to him.
0: Yeah. So between a parenting approach that basically allowed their kids to run wild and do whatever they wanted, and then Susan's bizarre behavior. The boys started getting into lots of trouble like being expelled and bullying other kids and they even went to juvie. So the turning point in Susan and Felix's marriage also comes around this time when Susan realized she had absolutely no recollection of the first time that she had sex with Felix. She didn't remember details like what she wore Or what the date was, what they discussed in her session that day, or any of the other details you think that you would recall from a significant moment like that. Yeah, like your first time. Right. It was her. Yeah, technically. It's literally her first time, probably. Probably was, yeah. So, with all of this supposed like suppressed memory work she's been doing, she automatically assumes that if she doesn't remember it, it must have been traumatic and therefore something her brain suppressed. And Felix couldn't really recall those details either. And rather than chalking that up to the reality of trying to remember something from decades ago, Susan becomes very suspicious of her husband. She then, quote, remembers Felix hypnotizing her as a teenager and sexually assaulting her. And she believed that she had suppressed the memory and that she had struggled to remember more details because of the hypnosis. So... Felix denies these claims and suggested that she go to another therapist for help. But because this is the late nineties and now sleeping with your patients is strictly forbidden, it's illegal. It's possible that he could lose his license if another therapist learned how Susan and Felix met. So he insists that she go to therapy to talk about this, but that she can't talk to the therapist about him or their marriage. So whether it's true or not, Susan very much believed that she had been hypnotized by her therapist, raped, and then seduced and manipulated into marrying him and having his kids. And that once she figured it all out, he panics and insists that she get help, but not tell anyone why she needs the help. So she said at this point, she really feared him and felt depressed at the thought that she had been manipulated into marrying her rapist. And even though Her new therapist continually asked about Felix. She was just too afraid to talk about him. So I don't know if I believe all of these like suppressed memories of hers. And I don't know if I believe that Felix hypnotized her. But I do believe that a grown man took advantage of this young girl and kept her close to him for over 20 years before she started looking at it and questioning his actions. And I don't think you can ever label sexual acts between an adult and a minor as sex because a minor can't consent. So I think that automatically makes it rape. Um, I totally believe that she was manipulated into being with him for as long as she was. So I think that there is some truth in what she claims. And I think fearing him at that point was valid, but it's, you know, everything I just said about her paranoia and her behavior, it's like, it's all mixed in with this stuff that kind of makes her not that credible. So it's, It's just hard.
1: Yeah, it's actually unfortunate because there's so many things in life where if you look back on situations that you were in, maybe in middle school or high school, even in college, you look back on it and it seemed normal at the time. And then, you know, the perspective of age and, you know, maturity, you look back on something and you're like, that was so unhealthy and abnormal and should never have been allowed. And she probably, you know, had that normal realization, but with a side of being... Mentally ill.
0: (laughs) Of course, yeah. So Susan didn't know how to proceed, but she knew that she couldn't be with Felix as normal. She didn't want to divorce him because her parents had been divorced and she was afraid of putting her kids through the same trauma. So she asked Felix to move out, but instead of that, he actually moved into a guest room. So even though she made it clear she didn't want Felix to live there anymore, the whole family ended up moving to another upscale neighborhood called Arinda. Felix let Susan and the boys live in the main house while he moved into the detached guest house in the backyard. So for the next year, Susan supposedly remembered more and more suppressed memories of Felix. She started to tell people that he used to be a spy for the CIA and he had attempted to recruit her to be a spy as well. And the more outlandish her claims became, the more concerned he became so naturally he started paying closer attention to her but she interpreted this as felix plotting something and doing things to make her doubt her own sanity and when she started to feel odd physical ailments like weird body aches and being extra unusually tired she thought he was drugging her (laughs) So, oh, my God. So then she refused to eat or drink anything that he had handled or brought into the home. So in early 2001, the police were called to the Polk home a number of times to settle domestic disputes between Felix and Susan. Both parties claimed each time that the other one had become violent. And during one visit in March, Susan asked the police to arrest Felix. But when they refused, because there was they, they had no reason to she requested that they arrest her. And again, there's no reason, so they said no. And they seemed confused by her request. She slapped Felix across the face in front of the police and said, okay, now you can take me to jail. So after this incident, Susan moved out of the house completely and Felix was granted a restraining order against her. So Susan spent a few months traveling and when she came back to California, she told Felix that she was ready for an official divorce. And then she took her stuff and she moved to Montana to start over and left her kids behind. So during this period where the boys were alone with their dad, they discovered just how much their mom had done to turn them against Felix. She had spent the last you know, few years sharing in detail All of the abuse that she had experienced at the hands of their father and that his mission in life was to control all of their thoughts. She even shared with them different ways that she had considered killing Felix like hitting him with a car or drowning him in a pool or actually shooting him in the head with a shotgun. She was expecting to be awarded custody of their youngest son, Gabriel, as well as a generous alimony child support payment of $7,000 a month. Like, that's what she had calculated that she should get. But the judge only awarded $1,500, and Gabriel wanted to stay in California with his dad. So Susan believed that somehow Felix had influenced Gabriel and the judge to be against her, and that he had... 20 million dollars hidden in an offshore account so there was no reason to deny her money so after this Susan calls Felix to inform him that she needs to come back to California for dental work that she had prepaid for and that she needed to grab some things that she'd forgotten at the house she told him that while she was in town she expected to stay in the main house with Gabriel while Felix stayed in the guest house and she threatened that if he
1: didn't do as she said she would blow his head off oh oh Okay, I definitely want her in my home now.
0: (laughs) So on October 7th, 2002, Susan left Montana to drive back to Orinda. Somewhere along the way, she stopped to drop off a letter at the post office addressed to the FBI, the CIA, and a judge from their divorce proceedings. In her letter, she states that she has psychic abilities and that she can predict the future. She claimed to have predicted the 9-11 attacks and that she had told her husband, Felix, about them because he's a spy, Mm -hmm. but that he didn't properly report to his supervisors at the CIA. So she blamed the 9-11 attacks on
1: her husband. It would have been really nice if someone had intervened at some point throughout the years because everything she says to me, it screams being a schizophrenic or something along those lines. And the fact that she was basically dismissed all of this time, I mean, this is obviously
0: going to combust. You have to remember, it's not really, like, dismissed because Felix is a mental health professional. Like, he believes that, in his opinion, she's fine. And he believes a lot of her ramblings. On October 9th, 2002, she finally arrives to the house and goes inside to find Gabriel watching TV with Felix. And... The sight of this, it crushed her to see how close they'd become in her absence, and she just felt enraged. She felt like Felix had stolen everything from her, starting with her innocence as a teenager, her entire adult life, and now her last baby. Around 5 a.m. on Sunday, October 13, 2002, 70-year-old Felix took his oldest and youngest sons, Adam and Gabriel, on a five-hour road trip. Adam was going back to UCLA for school, and the boys reported having a normal and happy day with their dad. They said they listened to music on the drive and talked most of the way, and Felix told the boys that he was hopeful that he and Susan might get back together in the future and that maybe all she needed was some time and space from him. Adam later said that he didn't agree with his dad's logic, but kept that to himself because he was just looking forward to returning to school to get away from the family drama. I've done that drive back and forth from L.A. to the Bay Area. Like, it's so many times that the idea of doing it round trip in a day is a little crazy. But that's what Felix did. Um, So, after they drop Adam off, Felix and Gabriel drive back five hours back to Urbinda. And Gabriel says that they got home safely. And that he went inside the main house to go to bed. And Felix went to the the detached guest house to go to bed also and I think it was like 10 or 11 p.m. something like that the next day Monday October 14th 15 year old Gabriel went to school and he said he was having a nice day and was looking forward to that evening because his dad was taking him to a baseball game after work Gabriel finished his classes he met his mom for lunch and then sometime after 12:30 p.m. they went home But as they got home, Susan told him that she needed to run errands, and he thought it was odd that she hadn't done that while they were out, but didn't really think much of it, and he stayed behind at the house. Gabriel said that he worked out, showered, got ready for the game, and then waited for his dad to get off work. The plan was that Felix would come straight to the house from his office and grab Gabriel and then go straight to the stadium, but he didn't show up on time. Oh, no. So eventually, Susan returned from her errands and made dinner around 7 p.m. Gabriel starts to get really worried because at this point, his dad is hours late to pick him up for a game that had been planned far in advance. And obviously, the game has very much started already. Yeah, absolutely. So around 8.30, it's clear that something is very wrong. And he asks Susan if she knows where Felix is. Susan told him that she didn't know and said, maybe
1: he's been in an accident. Why don't you call Highway Patrol? What a strange thing to suggest of not even just calling to see if he's okay, but to suggest that it's been an accident and to contact Highway Patrol. Yeah, it's such a specific thing. There's something bizarre about that, yeah. So Gabriel said he just knew by looking at her
0: that she was lying. This is in 2002, so I assume Felix didn't have a cell phone. I mean, I don't know. Um... And I don't know if Gabriel had tried contacting him at work. So he decides to go to the guest house where Felix had been sleeping during Susan's trip. And he said the front door to it was locked. And all of the lights were out. And he felt kind of spooked. Mm -hmm. So rather than go around to the back door of the guest house in the dark, he went back to the kitchen where Susan was cleaning up their dinner. He asked her bluntly where Felix was. And this time, she casually said, He's gone. Aren't you happy? I am.
1: Oh, uh, I would have gotten chills just all the way down my back.
0: So he asks again, where is dad? And Susan responds, aren't you happy? No. So Gabriel says that he had spent years listening to his mom toy with different ways of killing Felix. So much so that eventually the weight of those threats completely lost their meaning. So it hit him like a ton of bricks when Susan chuckles and says, I guess I didn't have a shotgun, did I? Uh So he panics, runs upstairs to his bedroom, and calls the police. But when he was asked what his emergency was, he realized he actually had no idea. Like, was his dad hurt or missing or just stuck at work? Was that whole exchange with his mom just another crazy interaction that actually had no meaning? So he hangs up with the operator He grabs a flashlight And he goes to the guest house And enters through the back door He'd been too scared to go through earlier With his flashlight He finds his dad's body Unmoving on the floor Covered in blood He ran outside And hid from Susan behind the garage Where he called 911 And reported that his mom had killed his dad When the police arrived They handcuffed and separated Both Susan and Gabriel to figure out what exactly had happened after determining that felix was in fact deceased a police officer informed susan of her husband's death and her response was oh well we were getting a divorce anyways so between this remark her overall unbothered demeanor and gabriel's conversations with the officers where he told them everything about his parents and his mom's behavior They came to the conclusion that Susan was the main suspect and arrested her for Felix's murder. Susan seemed so nonchalant and didn't once cry, and when the police questioned her about it, she told them they should consider looking at Felix's clients as possible suspects and stated that despite not crying, she was very, 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 very upset by his death, and it made no sense for her to be the suspect because Felix provided her only source of income, so why would she kill him?
1: Well, you talk about it a lot. You seem very (laughs) interested in doing so. So I think that's why you're a prime suspect, Susan. We can list the
0: reasons, Susan.
1: Gabriel, the youngest, had moved in with family
0: friends. The middle son, Eli, had been serving a sentence in juvie at the time of the murder. And then 19-year-old Adam had come home from college to take over the finances and figure out a plan for the family going forward. While Susan was in jail waiting for her sentencing... She wrote a short story about a toy maker and his puppet that was supposed to represent her and Felix. The toy maker and the puppet have three sons, two of which are controlled by the toy maker, but their middle son was not under the toy maker's control and he had escaped. In her story, whenever the puppet tried to escape, the toy maker would catch her and say, Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater, had a wife and couldn't keep her. So he kept her in a pumpkin shell and there he kept her very well. So on October 6th, a week before he had died, Felix confessed to a friend that he was worried about Susan and that he feared that she had maybe purchased a shotgun and was beginning to question if he should really fear for his safety. I don't know if in that week he had come to the conclusion he should fear her or if he was still on the fence about reporting his concern, but either way, he died without informing the police. In the beginning of her legal proceedings, Susan chose to represent herself in court, which is always a sign of mental stability. (laughs) Absolutely. Never a good idea. She claimed to be innocent and that she had no idea who killed him. But when it was discovered that Susan's hair was found on Felix's body as well as gripped inside his hand, she quickly admitted to killing him but claimed it was self-defense. The coroner determined that Felix had been stabbed over 20 times with a combination of fatal wounds to his midsection and defensive wounds on his hands and arms. And I watched this interview with Susan on YouTube and she was like, People say I stabbed him 27 times, but I only stabbed him four to six times. Oh, okay. So Susan's version of events is the only one we have to go on, so I'm just going to share it. She said that around 11 p.m. on Sunday, October 13th, just after Felix and Gabriel returned from their road trip, she went to the guest house to speak to Felix about finances. She said that she had brought pepper spray for protection and that when Felix became angry and attacked her with a knife, she got him with the pepper spray and despite supposedly being on her back, she managed to get the knife out of his hands and she stabbed him so that he wouldn't stab her. She said that she washed the blood off of her in the kitchen sink and then sat next to his body in shock while she waited for the police to arrest her. She assumed that Gabriel or neighbors would have heard what happened and called 911. After waiting for half an hour, She realized no one was coming and worried what it would look like if she called the police herself and they realized that she had waited 30 minutes to call. So she decided to clean up what she could and go back to the main house to go to sleep. She even cleaned the knife, put it back where it belonged because she said it was the family's favorite
1: kitchen knife. I mean, you reach a certain age and you have a favorite knife and a favorite spatula. We all know that. I know.
0: The next morning, she made Gabriel breakfast And after he left for school, she drove Felix's car to the nearest BART station in order to make it look like he'd gone to work like normal. She said that she regretted allowing Gabriel to find Felix that night, but she just hadn't been able to figure out what to do about his body sooner. When a local attorney named Dan Horowitz read about Susan's story, he was determined to get on what he expected to be a very high-profile case. He met with her in jail, and she agreed to let him represent her, which really worked out for both of them. She needed a good attorney, and Horowitz had very big aspirations for himself. He wanted his career to reflect only high-profile cases and clients, and he made several appearances on court TV, hoping one day to have his own show similar to, like, Nancy Grace. Horowitz went to the press hard. With a very sad and theatrical story that Susan was a battered woman who'd been imprisoned by her horrible abuser and that this was a case of an innocent woman defending herself from a monster. And apparently his story like landed really well because the general consensus was that most people felt sorry for her and believed that she had only killed Felix in self-defense. So three full years after Felix's murder, Susan's trial finally began in October of 2005. The coverage of it was insane. Like it, it was like salacious. It was so heavily covered, which still shocks me because I I don't know how I missed it all at the time.
1: <laughs> well, this isn't like really what interests you when you're 12 years old. Yes, it. It
0: what? Oh, baby. Do oh, you yeah. Know me at yeah, all?
1: yeah, yeah. I take it back. I take it back. I'm like, this is literally what I would have loved to read about. Yeah. So I don't know what's wrong with me.
0: And it, it's, it's honestly, like, it's too difficult to say at this point which way the jury was leaning because both sides had excellent arguments and they were only a week or two into it anyways. But there is a shocking turn of events that effectively ends the trial. On Saturday, October fifteenth, two 2005, only a couple days after the anniversary of Felix's death, Susan's attorney, Dan Horowitz, spent the day at work prepping for cross-examination in Susan's case that upcoming week. He said that he felt very good about the way this trial was going and it was certainly delivering in terms of elevating his career to a high-profile status because he'd already made more than one appearance on Nancy Grace just a few days prior. Horowitz realized that afternoon before he went home that he hadn't heard from his wife, 52-year-old Pamela, since that morning. He tried calling but didn't get through to her. It seemed odd to him but he didn't really give it much thought because he knew she had a busy day planned. So when he arrives at the house around 6 p.m. that evening he was surprised to see pamela's car in the driveway because he knew she had plans to attend a ballet that night with friends and she should have been gone by now when he gets to the front door to find it's not only unlocked but ajar, he realizes something is wrong and rushes inside he finds his wife's body in the entryway curled into the fetal position covered in blood he frantically called 911 But
1: she had died hours before. Oh my god, I know where this is going. And it's like taking everything in me to be like, just keep going. So Dan was
0: gutted at the loss of his wife. He lost 30 pounds in the first few weeks after her death. And he struggled to focus at work. But he was determined to see this case through. He'd had a very tough bulldog persona, like as an attorney. But after Pamela's murder, that just completely disappeared yeah the press started speculating that the two cases were connected because both victims had been stabbed to death and both victims had lived fairly close to one another and this speculation was only fueled by susan's crazy ass when she was interviewed and insisted that felix's spy friends from the cia had targeted pamela as a way to scare susan but as it turns out a 16 year old neighbor of Dana pamela's had decided to grow marijuana plants in his closet But he couldn't afford the equipment, so he came up with this idea to open a credit card in his neighbor's name. Then he decided to have the order shipped to another neighbor, which turned out to be Pamela, to try to cover his tracks. But when the company became suspicious that the name and the billing address was completely different from the recipient's name and address, they wouldn't release the order until speaking with Pamela directly. So the police believe that the teenager went to Pamela to threaten her into cooperating and that when she refused, he stabbed her to death.
1: Oh, okay. I thought Susan did it. She was in jail. Yeah, that that's, ignore me. But my, in my head, I'm like, oh, Susan, she found a way. <laughs> she did it. it I, I literally know the story and I thought she still did it.
0: It became clear pretty quickly that the two murders were unrelated, but it made Dan's ability to continue with Susan's case almost impossible. Like, given how close both crimes were to each other, there was so much overlap with the forensics and the police. Like, the coroner who performed Felix's autopsy had also performed Pamela's, which created a really huge conflict of interest, given that Dan had planned to call that coroner as a witness in Susan's case. So a few days after Pamela's murder, the judge in Susan's case declared a mistrial and removed Dan as her attorney. He advised her to find a new attorney in preparation for the next trial. But what do you think she does? She goes back to representing herself. I was going to say. Why wouldn't she? Yeah. It's easier. Yeah. So obviously without getting into the details, Susan acting as her representation gave the court a very clear view into her mind. I mean, not only was she not an attorney, but she was clearly mentally ill. So choosing to represent herself really only sealed her fate, I think. The biggest witnesses in the trial were Felix and Susan's sons, who were by this point aged 23, 21, and 19. Adam and Gabriel, the oldest and the youngest, believed that their mom was guilty and testified against her. They had even filed a wrongful death suit against her because... They feared she would blow all of their inheritance on her legal fees otherwise. But the middle son, Eli, was team Susan all the way, and he believed that his dad had been drugging and hypnotizing his family for years before his death.
1: Oh no, she got to him. Yeah. Gabriel's
0: testimony against Susan was damning in every way. He shared in great detail ...what it was like to grow up with a mentally ill mother... ...who openly fantasized about killing his dad on a daily basis. He called her, quote, totally delusional. And in response, Susan kept him on the stand for five days... ...before the judge ordered her to end her examination... ...because it was bordering on abuse. The juror said that it seemed like she was determined... ...to have Gabriel admit that she was a good mother rather than focusing on proving her innocence, and that she refused to stop her questioning in order to be near him because she'd been cut out of his life since the night he found his dad's body. So this was like the first time that she had even spoken with him. So as the final nail in the coffin, Susan called herself to the witness stand and rambled delusions for days on end. She was trying really hard to share her life story with the jury, but in reality, she just continually undermined herself by claiming Felix was a spy for the CIA and had ignored all of her predictions of worldly disasters and famous murders. Mm-hmm. So, in July of 2006, over four years after Felix's death, Susan was found guilty of murder in the second degree and sentenced to 16 years to life in prison. And the latest that I could find was that during her parole hearing in 2019, She was so disruptive that she had to be removed halfway through.
1: Oh my God.
0: Yeah. She was denied parole and she's not going to have another hearing for 10
1: years. That's probably for the best.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, no one deserves to be murdered. And it's very clear that Susan struggled with significant mental illness. But I want us all to remember how they met and how their relationship developed Susan was a child who needed help, and Felix, the adult being paid to help her, took full advantage of her. So I believe that she's a victim in this as well, but I think that the real victims to focus on are the Polk boys who lost both of their parents on the same night. And that's
1: the story of Susan Polk. You did an excellent job. Thank you. An excellent job, Ashley. Thank that you. is for so many different reasons heartbreaking i can't my heart goes out to those sons
0: i know it's very very sad and it's it's like it's just so awful in in every way because she like she murdered someone and we no one ever deserves that but it's also like i she was a lifelong victim Absolutely. So it's just, it's sad in every aspect. And then obviously, their kids, I can't even begin to imagine what they went through throughout their whole childhood and then as adults. And
1: she so badly needed someone to advocate for her and step in. And oh, man. The guy
0: who was supposed to be that person for her is actually what caused all the harm.
1: Was her downfall. Yeah. That's
0: That's so sad. It's really sad. I had no
1: idea that happened so close to your home.
0: Dude, I know crazy i couldn't i love a good
1: hometown story i know me too and i didn't even know i had any
0: well this was fun it's not the same as doing it in person but
1: it's better than nothing it's not as fun but it's better than nothing and i cannot wait to see you next week i know me too love you love you (laughs) bye bye (laughs) thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram and YouTube at CrimeBarPodcast. We really love doing this show. And if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website, as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Ana Katharina. We'll see you next week.